it's really like being in a fairy forest. I mean, it's almost out of Lord of the Rings. Juliet Alpern is a climate editor for The Post. Over the summer, she traveled to the Tongass National Forest in Alaska, the home of some of the oldest trees in the country. For loggers, just one of these trees can be sold for thousands of dollars. But they're also valuable to the rest of us. That's because of the role they play in cooling our warming planet. One of the reasons that old growth trees are so valuable from a climate perspective is that they have been taking in carbon for hundreds of years. I think the way to think about it is that in many cases, the old growth trees that we see in the Tongass and elsewhere hold a disproportionate amount of carbon. And that's one of the reasons why people are saying that they should not be cut down at this point. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Cleve Woodson, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 3rd. Today, how ancient trees in the Tongass National Forest became so embroiled in the politics of timber and climate change. The idea that these forests need to be preserved is actually pretty new. For decades, logging of old-growth forests in Alaska was the norm. Juliet spoke to one of the many people who built their lives around logging. My name is Richard Wilson. I was born in Lebanon, Oregon, and August 16th, 1944. And uh, pretty much logged till I couldn't <laughs> and, uh, anymore and uh, still dreaming at night. But uh, We sat outside on the deck and just talked about what had brought him to Alaska, what he had seen in his time working in the woods before he retired not quite two decades ago. And he wears suspenders and has his work boots on and is someone who I thought offered such an incredible perspective on the woods and what it was like to make money felling trees. His dad was a logger back in Oregon, in Lebanon, Oregon. And so he was actually really put to work as a child working um, in the woods. Before I was old enough to go to school, I don't know, five, six, before the first grade, but uh, I would go to work with him five days a week. And then in his early 20s, had a decision to make about whether, you know, at that point he wanted to work somewhere else, make make a little more money. And, and it also is in keeping with what, again, was happening with the timber industry in the United States, which is that they had cut down so many big trees in the Pacific Northwest that people were moving on to places that had been, until then, largely undeveloped. Juliet spoke to producer Emma Talkoff about the history of logging in these old forests. What was the state of logging in Alaska at the time? It was really in its heyday when he arrived. At that point, you had a couple of big pulp mills that had signed 50-year contracts with the U.S. Forest Service to take 
wood from the Tongass National Forest. Mm. And the wood that they were cutting down was in high demand. It was being used in everything from rayon to, you know, other products. And it was also, keep in mind, this was before the kind of landmark environmental laws that we often think of, like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Mm. Act. And so these operations didn't have to comply with the same sort of rules that timber companies and operations now have to comply with. And so as a result, there was just a logging boom going on. And it was a great place for young men to make a decent amount of money and and also, you know, spend time outdoors, which is what many of them were passionate about doing. The romance of it, the excitement of it, the feeling of uh, being tired physically tired at the end of the day, knowing that you did an honest day's work. Uh, The camadre ship of it, uh, it was a a freedom that if you didn't like the job, all you had to do was call an airplane and there was jobs everywhere. So how did logging work in those lakes? Like, how did they decide which trees to cut down and which trees to leave? Well, they really were looking for the biggest trees. Different species of trees have been more valuable. For example, Hmm. the Sitka spruce has traditionally been an incredibly valuable tree because its grain is very fine and straight. And so it's, it's really a beautiful and incredibly strong tree. And so it's valued for everything from fine musical instruments to furniture, paneling, and you name it. The oldest and biggest trees have always been the ones that have been worth the most. And if you're going to spend time and money and again, take risks to put people out there in the woods to cut down these trees, you're going to want to choose the most valuable trees. In those days, the only thing they took was the best, the very best. It was kind of like the Wild West, in a way. Uh, And logging was viewed considerably different back then than it is now. So what did Dick tell you about what he observed about the impact of logging on the forest around him? He felt that essentially some of the logging was excessive, that when he looks at it, he thought that they didn't provide enough safeguards in terms of, for example, leaving stream buffers so that you could preserve the integrity of of creeks where, you know, again, we're talking about one of the greatest wild fisheries in the world. And he saw times where essentially the logs would be cut down and essentially the waste would clog up the streams so that you couldn't have fish live there. Over time, he just felt that while there's there's nothing wrong with cutting down trees, that it was done in a in a pretty thoughtless manner. I mean, it was uh, a total joke. I uh, could see that it wasn't wasn't proper management, and I wasn't into management. And they didn't ask me my opinion on whether we should log this or whether we shouldn't log it. And my job was to get the most amount of logs I could at the cheapest expense that I could.
And like what happens when a forest runs out of old growth trees to cut down or when all of the old growth trees in an area are cleared? It has huge ramifications. I mean, one of the things is, as you know, anyone in the industry will say, the trees will grow back, but these younger growth trees, they become very crowded. In other words, part of the great mm-hmm. thing about having old dominant trees is that they're often clearings. Uh, and as a result, the wildlife can make it through there, the deer, the wolves, the other wildlife, you know, that's kind of essential. Those larger trees, they help keep the streams cool so that it's viable for salmon populations. And as a result, when you cut everything down and you clear cut, and that was, you know, that is not as much the practice today, but absolutely was kind of the default. There was, you know, pamphlets saying clear cutting is the American way. They were just absolutely kind of destroying the structure of a forest, an old growth forest, which by definition is kind of messy and uneven. And actually Hmm. that unevenness and the messiness of old growth is what you want to really have a healthy forest. And so what does the Tongass look like today? How many of the old growth trees are left? So there are a couple of biologists who have spent time studying this, John Schoen and Dave Albert, and they estimate that about half of the Tongass's large tree old growth stands have been clear cut since the start of large-scale logging in the 1950s, but roughly 5 million acres of prime old-growth habitat remains. I do think that that's worth noting, that that yes, there there are all these ways you look at it, and some of the numbers might seem dark, but when, when you see even one of the places that has had the most intense logging, it still does have a significant amount of old growth. What is the current sort of political climate around these trees, and what is in place to protect them? And also, I guess, what are the arguments for continuing to take them down? So there are parts of the Tongass that are protected as wilderness where there are not roads. And and so there's absolutely parts of it that are off limits to development. In October of 2020, shortly before Donald Trump left office, he lifted what's called the roadless rule. And that was essentially kind of the most protective measure that was taken by the federal government back in 2001, right before Bill Clinton was leaving office, to ban road building in more than half of the Tongass, as well as tens of millions of other acres out west. And so Donald Trump basically said, we're taking off these restrictions. There will obviously be different rules for timber sales and road building, but we're not going to say that there's any specific place outside of wilderness where you can't build roads in the Tongass. And as soon as Joe Biden came in as president, he started reversing that rollback. And so where we stand now is that, one, the Biden administration is proposing reinstating the roadless rules. And in addition, the Biden administration declared a few months ago that it would end large old growth logging in the Tongass. So that's significant because under multiple presidents, there have still been timber sales involving old growth in the Tongass. It's the only place in the country where there are still old growth timber sales being conducted by the U.S. government. Almost all of the Alaska 
statewide officials, which includes its governor, Governor Dunleavy, as well as the entire congressional delegation, all of whom are Republican, argue that it's important for logging to continue. While the timber industry is a very small fraction of employment in Southeast Alaska and Alaska as a whole, these are high-paying jobs. And their argument is that it is essential to have them as part of the economic mix, especially in a part of the state, the Southeast, that has been hard hit by the pandemic. It, It relies heavily on tourism and clearly kind of the traditional cruise tourism has declined significantly during during COVID. And as a result, they are saying that they need to keep timber as a viable industry in Alaska. After the break, what happened to the logger Juliet spoke to and what the future of logging could look like in Alaska? We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So, Juliet, I'm wondering what happened with Dick Wilson. When did he decide to leave the logging industry and why? What happened? The way Dick Wilson put it is that he actually had several accidents while he was working as a logger. One of the worst was in 1987, um, and that was a terrible accident where a tree fell on him. And he could not work for two years. I turned around, and the butt of that tree swung up the hill and hit me in the chest and knocked me down. What's interesting is that he was middle-aged and had... A choice to make, which is, could he try to retrain and find a totally different profession? Or could he go back to logging? And what's incredible is that he kind of said he couldn't think of anything else that he would want to do or would rather do. And so he got healed and he went back to work and then didn't retire until 2003. Wow. But then since then, he's kind of had a change of heart about logging, right? Like, what happened and, and how does he feel about it now? He, I think, I think when this logging was going on, whether it was, you know, in the late 60s or in the 70s or the early 80s, they were cutting down the trees and they didn't quite anticipate what it would be like when the forest grew back. 
And it took a couple of decades for folks to see what the forest like when they're kind of a thicket of trees. And again, they're, they're not providing the same sort of habitat and environment that people come to expect. And then you also have to keep in mind that this is a part of the country and a part of the world that's warming at a faster rate than, say, the continental U.S., the lower 48. And so as a result, Dick Wilson, who's been living here for for years, is really struck by the fact that there are heat waves. You know, he says that, you know, when he came here in the winter, you know, you had plenty of snow, you could walk out on the ice to meet airplanes. And he's seen these changes in the course of his lifetime and in his time in Alaska. And it's convinced him that we can't keep emitting as much carbon into the atmosphere as we are. And so he sees protecting old growth as one of the best ways to kind of tackle the climate change that he's experienced over the course of his lifetime. If you can't see the earth changing, got your head in the sand. If we don't start taking a little better care of this ball of mud, we're not going to have a place to live. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's my opinion. It's kind of like closing the door after the, the horse has escaped or the barn is on fire. Uh, they've over-harvested, and it's kind of hard to correct past mistakes. Now, it was a proud industry at one time, and like fishing, it's a crop. It's often referred to as God's noblest crop, and it's just like any other crop. You can, it can be mismanaged, and in my opinion, it has been mismanaged, and to what how to correct it, you're going to have to talk to somebody smarter than me. <laughs> so what does the future look like for the forests of Alaska if logging doesn't go on? I mean, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that there are a number of tribal corporations in Alaska that, for example, did really intense logging and are now reassessing that and trying to see if, for example, they can essentially trade the value of the carbon in these trees on carbon markets. And then you have fishing operators who feel like it's important to protect the forest as well as tourism operators. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have plenty of folks who live in these communities who feel like logging is important and they want to figure out a way to sustain it if they can. But when you look at what's happening, it seems pretty clear that given what we're going to see with this administration, old growth logging will not continue in the same way than it has in the past. But I think what's really interesting about, again, this, this part of Alaska is that they're trying to figure out true sustainability, both, of course, in the environmental term, but also in terms of what kind of jobs are people going to have? You know, can people make enough money by having people come and visit these forests and go fishing? And, you know, so these are all some of the questions that they're exploring. And they, they really are all tied to the trees. Juliet Alprin is a climate editor for The Post. She talked to Emma Talkoff, who also produced this story. 
It was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Martine's on vacation this week, but I'm here and we're cooking up a bunch of great shows. Tomorrow, we're going to get all the latest on Omicron from my colleague Dan Diamond, who's been covering the pandemic for The Post. Till then, I'm Cleve Woodson. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.